0: During the months of, of January and February, we've been in a series, which uh, technically I wrapped it up last week, but I wanted to reflect upon it today and uh, reflect upon this, this, this uh, idea of, of our everyday lives flourishing, that God has called us, He's made us to flourish, to experience wholeness in all of life, and we've looked at in many different topics. We began, obviously, with, with our spiritual health, but then we also considered our emotions, our physical bodies, our money and finances, our relationships, and our jobs, our responsibilities. And in each of these cases, we see that God has given wisdom. He's given a design. And these are areas that we want to see flourish. And to know that that, that desire for flourishing is a god given desire. It it flows out of the design that he has put forth in each of these different aspects of life. But we want the flourishing to be in a distinctively God-honoring way. We we don't want to isolate those topics in a way that that make them... encourage us to be self-saturated, if you will. We want to look at them, and I, and I hope that we have week by week looked to God's Word, looked to His Spirit. And, and as we do that yet again this morning, I want to wrap it up with this whole idea, just as Stephanie, Stephanie uh, mentioned earlier, the idea of, of living and giving our lives for God's glory. So just think about what she said. Fold it, Fold it to the glory of God, right? Just put it right there. Now, whatever it is that we're doing, unto God's glory, whether it's how we, how we handle our finances, how we approach people and relationships, how it is that we, that we consider our jobs or our life responsibilities, how we think even of how we care for our physical bodies, to do so, each and every one of them, for the glory of God. Last week, we looked at a definition regarding purpose from J.P. Moreland. I want to pick back up with it. He writes, the purpose of life is to bring honor to God. To know, love, and obey Him; to become like Him, and to live for His purpose in this world, as I prepare to live in the next one. And it's a very rich definition. A lot that could be could be considered in those words. And again, it, the overarching theme is glorifying God, honoring God with uh, with everything uh, that is within us. We indeed have this as a purpose. Uh, Many years ago, a man by the name of Thomas Watson uh, gave uh, an explanation on how we can understand the glory of God. And by the way, this isn't the Tom Watson, the golfer, right? This is the Thomas Watson that was of the Puritan days. But this is what he said, that God's glory can be seen in two ways. One, the intrinsic glory, this idea that his glory emanates from himself in a way that that light emanates from the sun and that that we don't add to that glory, right? I mean, that, that is purely His glory that is on display, His character, His attributes, His nature. But there is another way to understand glory, and that is, and that is the, the glory that we attribute to God. It's what, it's what we do when we point to Him, or if you, you may like the word magnify God, that, that, that just as we would think of a telescope can, can, can magnify the heavens, that, that as followers of Christ, when people see us, we are to magnify our Lord, that we are to point to him. So that's the type of glory, the kind of honor that we are called to live for in all of life, every aspect. We belong to him. And so for us to have a distinctively God-honoring perspective is critically important. Before we turn to Romans, I want us to look at a couple of verses from Psalm 16, and I've been reading through this psalm uh, throughout the week and last week, and, and I, I will preach a message on Psalm 16 sometime soon. It's just one that's, that's really, really become a, a great blessing to me, but I wanted to, to just reference it this morning because I think a, a couple of the verses there in the middle of the psalm really connect to what we've been looking at and thinking about the wholeness of life, and thinking of this idea of shalom and well-being, Psalm 16, 5 says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. Now, someone here today might need that reminder, that he is our portion. What do we think of when we think of a portion? If you're like me, you're thinking of a meal, right? Right? We get to the kitchen, we've got all this food, and well, which portion is mine, which portion? I mean, we've got teenage boys in our house, right? So portioning is an important thing, right? But think about your portion in life, your your cup of blessing, as it says. It's the Lord. Your walk with God is your portion. It is what brings you sustenance. It is what the Lord would would teach us in, in the model prayer. When he, would, when he would encourage us to think about our daily bread, right? This idea of nourishment is, is not a feasting upon the things of the world. It is an acknowledgment that the Lord alone is our portion and our cup. And don't you like the, the, the end of it? You hold my future. You hold my future. There's a promise promise for us that is, is uh, certainly worth considering this morning. Amazing, reassuring thought to know that we belong to Him. But look at the next verse, verse 6. This is one of those verses, I'm sure that I've read it. I don't know how many times just in reading through the Psalms, but it really jumped out at me. Look at verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Let that sink in for a minute. Think about your boundary lines. Because in many ways, we've been, we've been talking about that all of January and February. What are your boundary lines? The place of your life, the aspect of, of who would be within your boundary lines. Obviously, your family, if you have children, a spouse. Relatives, they are in your boundary lines, right? Your friends, those in your your neighborhood, those that you work with or you go to school with. These are all people in your boundary lines. If you're on a sports team or you participate in a hobby, all of this is the boundary lines, including those seated around you today, your church family. Just think for a minute about how God has placed those lines. For you and for me in such a way to say, this is your sphere. This is your domain. These are the boundary lines of your life. And as I mentioned, all those different aspects of, of describing it, could you not agree with the psalmist and say, Lord, my boundary lines have been put in pleasant places. Think about who those people are. To just stop and be grateful for a moment. That these are the ones, whether it's family or even church family or community, these are the boundary lines. They're, they're pleasant places. And in, and in him, we have a beautiful inheritance. It's all about God. It's all about what he has done, what we have received from him. I think even as we, as we receive the Lord's Supper today, the idea of our inheritance in Christ, what we have received in him really comes to the forefront As we break the bread, drink the cup, reflect on his life. So so think through those two verses of Psalm 16 as we consider today that God is indeed our portion, our cup of blessing, and that we are God-glorifiers, God-magnifiers to those within our boundary lines. Think about that. Not everyone in your boundary line may know Christ at this point. And so you are that reflection of magnifying God to them. As you think about your boundary lines, your life, we could say it either way, ask if God is at the center of everything. And you may have heard the name Nicholas Copernicus, Lived in the late 1400s, early 1500s. He was a Polish astronomer, best known for his theory of a heliocentric universe. You're familiar with that, that it is the sun that is at rest near the center of the universe, that the earth spinning on its axis each day revolves annually around the sun. That was an astounding discovery in its time. Because before this, what was it that astronomers believed? Yeah, they believed it was the earth that was at the center of the universe, you know, and that it was the sun and all these other planets that would, that would, that would revolve around, around the earth. So this was just, this was turning the field of astronomy uh, on its end. But there's another discovery which can be made by looking at God's creation, by reading his written Revelation and that is a discovery that God, not humans, are at the center of all life. I think we all begin like those other astronomers. I think we all begin with self at the begin, at, at the very center, and everything else is revolving. That would be what we would consider self-centered or egocentric. But think about when it was that you discovered the truth. No, it's not me at the center of the universe. It's God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else revolves around that. Just think of how that reshapes the way we see everything and the way that we live in this world. It's theocentric, not egocentric. In Romans chapter 1, we see what it looks like when self is at the center. Note the word glory or glorify used in Romans 1. For they, in verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the what? The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. There is an exchange that's happening there, an exchange of glory. Instead of saying God is at the center, we will put something else there, an exchange of the glory. And in doing so, we see what happens. Hearts are darkened. Instead of having wisdom, it's foolishness. And don't we ever see that in the world around us today when the truth is abandoned, all of a sudden it's foolishness that is upheld as the standard, upheld as what is right, as what is wise. And that's where we have to, as a church, be grounded in the Word on these kinds of things. Well, the discovery that Copernicus made changed the way people thought about the universe And when people discover and embrace the truth about God, it changes the way they think, not only about God, but also about themselves and in the ways in which they will live. Going through the book of Romans, if you look at chapter 3, we learn that we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, we learn that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Romans 5, we learn that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because God has demonstrated His own love for us in this. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 8, we learn that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We learn that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we see what happens from the beginning of Romans all the way to chapter 11. And here we have what's known as a doxology, a word of praise, a word of glory, doxa, that's given. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable is judgment and untraceable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is how it builds. But it really doesn't end at that amen. The praise of God continues as a life lived unto God. Because the very next chapter begins with the word, therefore. And he's he's saying, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Have you noticed the progression? That what we believe about God The theology that's found in these opening chapters of Romans leads to how we bring glory to God here in chapter 11, and then as we get into chapter 12, it's how we live for God. So since the beginning of January, we've been thinking about life, a life that that has been made to flourish, and it's all founded upon a life that brings glory and honor to Him. So before we receive the Lord's Supper, I'd like to quickly give three aspects of a life that is God-centered, a life that desires to magnify Him within these boundary lines in which our lives have been placed. How do we do this? Number one, we have a life that is pursuing God's wisdom. That's what we see in verses 33 and 34, the wisdom and knowledge of God something that is valued, treasured, something that is pursued as as desirable. This God-centered life recognizes the value of God's wisdom to know that that there is quote-unquote wisdom of the world, right, that detached from him is is foolishness. And so we we have to, to realize that God offers his wisdom. We always want to begin with the idea, what does God's Word say? That's the authority, the truth. And there is tremendous depth to God's Word. Look again at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom. Kind of reminds me of the the ocean depths. And to know that that, uh, you and I as humans, we have some real limitations when it comes to ocean depth, don't we? I mean, even, even with, uh, uh, with, with, with devices and, and, uh, and vessels and so forth, there are still limitations on, on what we as humans can actually experience when it comes to the depth of the oceans. And, and the psalmist is, like, amazed at the depth of the knowledge of God. Uh, Paul is writing here in, in Romans, and, and he's, he's using the word unsearchable literally like like footprints that are untrackable. We can't go as far as the wisdom and knowledge that God has. He's disclosed to us what what we can seek to understand, but it even goes further beyond. It's like a reminder of His magnitude, causes awe and wonder and praise. Aren't you glad that He is greater than us? And it just stirs within us this awe to know that in some way through his son, we are connected and we are safe in him, even though he is much further beyond our capacities. In fact, Isaiah would write in chapter 40, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Now, these are are questions that we know the answer to, right? Nobody did. He's the author of it all. So we go to him to seek to understand. He's disclosed his identity so that we can know him. And even though we won't fully comprehend everything about him, we pursue his wisdom and his knowledge. A God magnifying, God centered life. That's one one point. Second one is found in verses 35 and 36. And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So here we see a life that is depending on God's sufficiency. We move from His wisdom and knowledge to His sufficiency. We, we are not the ones that supply to Him. It's the other way around. In fact, our provision is made possible because of His sufficiency. And in fact, Paul makes, excuse me, this declaration that is, it's not only comprehensive because he uses the word all, words, all things, But it's also profound that God is central to everything. Look again at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him. These are three prepositions that precisely communicate three profound truths about God. Let's look at them together. The first one is from him. What does this tell us? It tells us that God is the source. That all things come from him. Why? Because he is the creator. He's the source of it all. It's all from him. He has originated everything. All of the origin is founded upon him. It's from him. But it's also through him. This is telling us that God is the means he actively sustains and providentially directs everything in creation. He is the personal means, again, by which all things that exist are accomplished. It's from him, it's through him, and it's to him. We could see that, that that God is the goal. He is, he is that all things exist for his glory, the ultimate purpose of human history is the honor of his name. So think about those three prepositions, from, through, and to. And we see that God is the author, God is the agent, and God is the audience for everything that our lives are about. So as we think about those boundary lines, we think about the lives in which God has called us to, we recognize that it comes from him, he's the source, we recognize that it continues because he is the supply, he is the means, but we don't want to stop there, do we? We want to live this life while we have opportunity to magnify him, to bring him honor, to bring him glory. That's what we think of when we think about all these elements of the, the lives that we've been given that are to flourish. When we think about our jobs or our relationships or our finances or our physical health, our spiritual growth, all of these, we say we want them to magnify God. That's why the end of verse 36 says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, how do we bring glory to God? How do we magnify him in our lives? The the chapter division cuts off Paul's conclusion, doesn't it? So we keep reading as we did a moment ago. We go right into chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And so here we have a life that is devoted to God's glory devoted consecrated committed this is the idea that based upon what we have what we have already seen what we've already experienced now we want it to be done for his glory paul presents the mercies of god as the motivation for giving ourselves to him he says this phrase in view of the mercies of god so what when i say that what comes to mind? What's in view to you? What's in your sight when you hear the phrase, the mercies of God? Are you thinking of blessings? Are you thinking of forgiveness? Are you thinking of grace? Are you thinking of his compassion? You think of all these aspects of his mercies, and it's like our response is to give him glory. He is the grace giver. He is the dead raiser. He is the one who saves and restores and gives hope and assurance. Just reflect for a minute on his mercies. Brothers and sisters, where would we be? Where would we be without the mercies of God? It's what it's all about, isn't it? I urge you to present, he says, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing he says, this is your true worship. So this, this, this word true means your are logical. Your reasonable response is to worship, to serve him. In light of all that God has done, this is, this is our response. To magnify him in our daily lives. In fact, the middle of verse 1 uses this phrase, living sacrifices. And when you think about the context of of Old Testament sacrifices, this this has got to really be a strange thought, right? Because in Old Testament worship, the sacrifice meant that the animal was brought and that the animal died as a sacrifice, as an atonement for the sins that one had committed. One died in place of another. Another. Against the backdrop of the Old Testament sacrifices, we now see that the New Testament worshiper is to offer himself or herself. We offer a living sacrifice. We offer our lives out of a recognition, or maybe you could even say out of a celebration for what God has done for us in Christ. We give ourselves to him. It's an act of commitment or dedication. Maybe the word consecration, that that's that's the life that you and I are called to live when we we hear this phrase, living sacrifice. And and even the word sacrifice, if you think about that word for, for a minute, speaks of a high cost, doesn't it? That if you and I are going to say, we will live as living sacrifices, there will be a cost. There will be a price at some point that we are paying along the way. So is it possible, friends, that a life that flourishes is a living sacrifice? A life that is made whole is a life that can be described in these terms? I'm reminded of what Isaac Watts wrote in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When he says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, that is our opportunity. No one can do that for me, and I can't do that for anyone else. I can only approach him on my own. Will my life be lived as a living sacrifice? Will my life be lived within these boundary lines in such a way that I can magnify him while I have opportunity? You see, these are the connecting questions to what we've been thinking about in the months of January and February. And yet now, we reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ. You know, it's interesting, we've been reflecting upon our lives week after week, and now today we reflect upon His life. It's as if we see the intersection of of His life and His sacrifice with the intersection of our lives and our call to have this this reasonable response, this, this true worship as living sacrifices. So we come now to the Lord's table and it's so rich because we come and we hold these elements in our hands and we, we are reminded, we are reminded of his life. We're reminded of, of the fact that he was without sin, he was obedient. And it brings about an opportunity to give gratitude. See, that was one of the marks of Romans 1. Those that, that were glorifying something other than God were not expressing gratitude to Him. So instead, we come and in remembrance, we give thanks. But it's also a time of reflection, a time for us to, to do business with the Lord, maybe even repentance. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 11. It says, so then whenever, excuse me, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. And so I, I think we, we, we consider the manner and that is the mindset upon which we receive these elements. That We are mindful of the price that has been paid. It's not saying that, that, that if anyone's unworthy that, that, that they can't take it because we're all unworthy. It's not a, it's not a matter of worthiness. It's a matter of the manner, that, that it's to be a worthy manner. That We are to come humbly. We are to come with, 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 with reverence with gratitude, and at times repentance gives us an opportunity to to come before the Lord and ask him to help us see where within our lives are we not living for his glory. What are those elements that have crept in that that have become substitutes? So before we receive the elements, why don't we take a moment? Let's reflect. Let's pray together. And then as we pray for this time, we will also pray a blessing upon each element, and then we will read again from Scripture, and then we'll take them together. But for this moment, let's bow, and you can begin with a personal word of prayer, and then I will, uh, I'll conclude our time.